Faculty Studio. Uh, we have uh, Sam Inglis, the Wildlife Programme Manager at ADM uh, Capital Foundation, and Dr Alice Hughes, an Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's School of Biological Sciences. Um, good morning to you both. Uh, perhaps um, Sam Inglis uh, first. Um, this obviously is a very serious uh, situation. Can you just uh, uh, put it in context for us? Uh, uh, Hong Kong is being uh, uh, described as the centre for the uh, exotic pet trade in the world. Uh, explain the situation to us. Uh, so I'd probably make a slightly more caveated point than that. Uh, Hong Kong is certainly a very significant player and certainly uh, a city that is playing uh, a far more significant role than we'd actually appreciated before we conducted the study. Um, but just to give you a few numbers that I think help to uh, help you with contextualizing it. Mm. So essentially we found that about 4 million animals drawn from about 700 species had arrived from 84 different countries uh, over the 2015 to 2019 period, which I think when you contrast it with a city of just 7 million people, um, gives you a fair indication that we've got a very large number of exotic animals that are arriving in the city for the pet trade. And that's before you even start to factor in uh, other purposes that exotic animals are being brought into the city for. Um, but yeah, so that, that I think is, is probably one of the key things. And obviously that has significant um, you know, conservation concerns because it's not just the volume of the trade, but we're also talking about, you know, the types of species amongst those 700 plus species. We have some that are critically endangered. We have many that have not been studied for decades. Uh, and we just have so many species that are in trade that are not sufficiently well understood that we can't really affirm the suitability or the safety or the sustainability uh, of them in, in our trade. Sorry, are they, were they being brought in to be pets here or brought in to go out again somewhere else? And that, that is actually an excellent question and something that we actually struggled um, to, to ascertain definitively. Um, so, you know, the four million animals coming in, uh, when we actually tried to correlate with that, correlate that with exports and re-exports, we couldn't really find a lot of data that indicated that many of these animals were actually leaving the city, at least not through legal channels. So it kind of threw up three different scenarios for us. And the first would be that there is a large resident population of exotic animals that are dwelling in the city, you know, among us. Uh, the second scenario is that perhaps there are a large number of exotic animals that are arriving in the city but are potentially dying off in very large numbers, which obviously you know, further exacerbates the trade as people try to replenish and replace the animals that die off uh, and is obviously a massive welfare concern. Uh, and then the third scenario is that a large number of these animals may actually be leaving the city through illicit channels. So the truth obviously lies somewhere between those three scenarios, but the fact that we can't definitively state based on official data which of those is most likely is certainly uh, a major concern and certainly one of the things that, you know, through our research right. we, we were trying to address but, but couldn't really. What sort of ex weird exotic creatures are being kept in here? Have you got any examples of the sort of thing people what, are keeping as a pet? I, I guess it depends how you define <laughs> weird. Um, I mean, the, the overwhelming majority of what's coming into the city, about 97% of what came in over the 2015 to 2019 period was reptiles. Uh, and among those, turtles and tortoises were, were a really massive um, part of the trade. Uh, so I don't, I don't know how you know, weird and wonderful <laughs> you consider those to be, but they're certainly amongst the most 
heavily impacted. And given that there's only, you know, so many turtle species, turtle and tortoise species on our planet, um, and many of them are, you know, quite strictly regulated to try to conserve their wild populations, um, there are certainly many concerns about the species that are cropping up in the trade. So they could be pets, but they could be in the in the cooking pot. There are some species where that's true, um, but I would say that of the four million that we were looking at, um, the majority were f pretty pretty clearly for pet trade. Um, we also found, looking at the Census and Statistics Department data, that there was about 1.8 million other exotic animals that had been brought in over the same period specifically for food. Um, and that's before you even start to factor in things that are coming in with unspecified uses. So we also found, and this is kind of a, an additional fact, 18.8 uh, .8 million frogs, live frogs, had been imported, but their end use was not specified. So for us, that raised some significant question marks because we could only account for about 7,700 frog species that had been brought in for the pet trade uh, under strict international regulations. Uh, so then that that leads to us, well, that led us to question, you know, where the 18.7 something million uh, had actually ended up. And the suspicion is that most of them are bullfrogs um, that are predominantly used for consumption uh, in various kinds and, and occasionally in mercy releases. But uh, yeah. A lot of question marks. Uh, um, Professor Hughes, good morning to you. Good morning. So you were involved in uh, extensive uh, international research with uh, uh, the Beijing Institute of Zoo Zoology, uh, uh, institutes in UK, Finland and Thailand. Um, and, and your findings uh, basically warned that a number of species are at risk of extinction because of this trade. Uh, uh, you mentioned 70% uh, of spiders and scorpions uh, being sold for medicine had been uh, sourced uh, from the wild. Um, to, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about, your, uh, about the conclusions of your report? Thank you. Well, this is actually one of a series of three reports we've done, firstly looking at the reptile trade, then looking at the amphibian trade, and then looking at the arachnid trade. All of these groups are underprotected by CITES, the body that people think of as trying to basically regulate unsustainable trade. And yet for all of these groups, a tiny percentage are actually covered. It's under 9% for reptiles, 2.5% for amphibians, and less than a percent for arachnids. In fact, less than 2% of arachnid species in trade are actually under CITES regulations. Now, when many people go to a pet store to buy these animals, they assume that they've probably been bred locally. They don't realize that for all of these taxa, we are still seeing the majority of animals coming from the wild. So in the reptiles, we found about 46% of individuals came from the wild, but for groups like the lizards, it was up to around 73%. For the amphibians, we saw a similar picture with around between 40 and 50% of individuals coming from the wild, and for the arachnids, 70% were coming from the wild. And so this problem is uh, undisputably having a huge impact on their wild populations. Mm -hmm. What's more is many of these species are virtually unknown to science. For example, in the arachnids, we found that about 75% of the species in trade come from just one country. The majority have no conservation assessment, no population data, and some of these have only been described, if at all, in the last few years. In fact, in our arachnid analysis, we found up to 100 undescribed species that are routinely being sold. 
One really interesting example is a spider described in 2019 with basically electric blue legs. It was first found in the rainforest by a photographer. He uploaded the photos online. Someone then used information embedded in those photographs to go and track down that spider. They illicitly exported it, described it, and now it's in trade. And so we know that given that it was only described in 2019, it may only have a tiny population. And yet that population may be entirely wiped out for the pet trade. Mm. This was the blue-legged tarantula found in Malaysia, discovered correct, in, in Malaysia. Yes. So, so, uh, so we're talking about large spiders, tarantulas here. Uh, in many cases, yes, but we found more than one thousand three hundred species of arachnid in trade. So. The tarantulas are massively impacted, and in fact, about 25% of species described since 2000 are in trade. But there are a suite of other species too, including, for example, the jumping spiders. Now, everyone will have seen those amusing videos of brightly coloured jumping spiders. What they don't realise is most of these species have no conservation assessment, and many of them are in trade. And so if we don't have good data on the wild population, or the export levels being that this is completely unmonitored, we cannot gauge what impact it will have on those wild populations. Professor Hughes, a lot of people would be rather untroubled by the idea of spiders dying. Um, they, they tend to swat them with newspapers or stamp on them with their shoes. What is the danger to nature? Well, I think we need to think about it in a much more holistic way. Right. Uh, from a very simple perspective, would you rather have a spider in your house or be being bitten by mosquitoes? Um, predators and ecosystems are important. And um, there's also an additive effect. So if you think of, as children, we often play Jenga and you have your tower of Jenga blocks. The more you pull out, the more unstable the system becomes. And there comes a point when that system collapses. Spiders and arachnids are important predators in these systems, and when we remove them, we can fundamentally change that system, and that can have huge consequences for all of the other species. And mm. it could also mean we have more things like mosquitoes or biting flies, which are things that I think people would probably enjoy experiencing less than having a spider they might not even be aware is there. Right, I, I, I realise that, in fact, I, I welcome it when our house has a gecko, um, I haven't really thought of it in the terms that you've described. But it is important, isn't it? It is. I think people are unaware of just how many services we gain from biodiversity and the risk of unsustainably using those wild species, which benefit us in a host of ways in which we're often completely unaware. And certain parts of the world as well, uh, uh, sp spiders are uh, used for food, aren't they? I mean, people, people eat correct. them. That's correct. Across Southeast Asia, in fact, is one of the areas we found that a lot of spiders are being exported for food. The same is true, as Sam said earlier, for amphibian species. And in our analysis of amphibian trade, we found that a huge number of amphibians are actually being exported. Now, this is not only impacting on those wild populations, especially as many are misreported, but it's also bringing diseases into countries. So we know that the export of things like bullfrogs is directly tied up with things like the spread of chytrid fungus. And I mean, yeah, chytrid fungus and ranavirus, which can contaminate waterways and then impact on native species. And so this unregulated and underregulated trade has a massive impact, not just on the source populations, but on native species. And in fact, in Europe and the US, they've started to put in place more regulations to prevent the import of wild-caught birds 
purely from a disease perspective. We need to be thinking much more holistically about the other species that are being impacted by trade and looking at similar levels of regulations for other taxa. Mm. Sa- Sam, have you noticed uh, any impact on uh, the flora and fauna in Hong Kong of the um, you know, uh, from escaped, if you like, uh, you know, escaped exotic pets or what? Well, it's certainly a uh, a major concern and something that is is quite complex to ascertain. Mm. I mean, there are there are researchers at Hong, the University of Hong Kong, for instance, and Lingnan University who have been doing particularly good work on on those issues. Uh, I suppose it gets a little bit complicated because there's a, a multiplicity of factors that have to be taken into consideration. So you have a species like the red-eared slider. That's long been the boogeyman for the demise of many of the local species of other turtles, uh, and which you know frequent Hong Kong's waterways. And absolutely, it has the potential to be quite impactful. I mean, invasive species... And, and the red-eared slider is one of the hundred most invasive or most troubling invasive species on the planet. And in other ecosystems, it certainly has had a demonstrable impact on other local species. But in Hong Kong, it hasn't been, you know, definitively ascertained that that species has had an impact on local species because of the, inter- you know, there's the there's factors such as the overlap of sort of hunting grounds or basking spots, you know, whereby. Anyway, essentially, the, the the key point that I'm trying to make here is essentially the the red-eared slider has long been the boogeyman for the decline in some of the local species, uh, and that may well be true. But we need to do more assessments to actually ascertain that definitively. And one of my concerns was from reading around it and understanding a little bit more about you know what other species are endemic and are allegedly being impacted by the red-eared slider. One of the questions that came up to me was is this actually just a cover for poaching? Because we are absolutely seeing declines of freshwater turtles in our local waterways, but are we attributing that decline to the right cause? Is it indeed outcompeting? Is it or is it because we have local poachers who are active? And I think that, you know, we often underestimate the activities and the frequency with which there is local poaching. But the seizure that was made last week, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday, um, of around uh, 20, 21 or 31 freshwater turtles is a, is a clear demonstration that there are poachers who are active in Hong Kong uh, and... I mean, just a a cursory glance at platforms like Facebook and and understanding the use of things like WhatsApp and WeChat, there are people who are operating locally and are absolutely taking our local fauna out of our ecosystems uh, and are, are you know wreaking havoc uh, on on local local uh, biodiversity on a big scale. Here, mm. holistic has been mentioned. Um, is this more? Are there more things local governments can do or should we be looking to CITES to do far more or both? So that's a really good question and we both found out before this call that we're working with some of the same people who are looking at how we actually regulate this. Mm. I think the answer is we need more regulations at all levels. There are species that are CITES listed, so for the arachnids there are about 30 species that are CITES listed, but there is no quota on them, so they're still being exported in millions of individuals from the wild. CITES is an instrument that was built for a world that is fundamentally different. Um, I could talk for hours about just CITES and the issues within it. I think we need to move forward. So there are now other UN bodies that are getting involved, both in legal and illegal wildlife trade. And we also need to be learning from existing systems that work better. 
As I mentioned earlier, uh, the US and Europe both have regulations to stop the import of wild-caught birds. Those kinds of regulations should be spread across other groups, but also for many of these species, we just don't have any data on the levels of import and export. The US, through their LEMIS system, which is from the US Fish and Wildlife Service, is one of the only countries in the world that routinely databases at high accuracy what is actually being imported, and we need more systems like that. But even within LEMIS, there are groups like the butterflies, like tropical fish, which they don't list them at species level, meaning that it's of limited value to those groups. So I think we need both better data and better regulations at all levels, because what we know is that for many species, this trade is completely unsustainable. And at the moment, for almost all species, you do not need to show what is sustainable in order to export a species. And that means that even for newly described species, they might be on the plane the day they're described. They might be on the plane before they're described in many cases, but there is no uh, protection by default. And we need to change that so that before something's exported, we know it's not going to impact on the wild population. And we also have methods to identify and make sure that that species is being correctly identified and that it's not being laundered under something else. What should Hong Kong be doing? Yeah, so there's a variety of different things that Hong Kong could certainly be doing um, better. Uh, And in fact, our report goes into great length on about 50 recommendations as to how we might actually improve different aspects of the system. But I think among some of the most key um, would be introducing sort of basic safety protocols through the likes of a positive list. So a positive list is not a ban, it's an indication of what can be safely, sustainably and suitably traded in Hong Kong. So identifying species that Hong Kong could reasonably trade um, in a way that wouldn't necessarily be deleterious to the species in their home range, but also considering species that would be suitable to keep in a in a home if you are inclined to keep an exotic pet. There are other things like bringing back in many of the safeguards that existed up until 2006 in relation to the possession license. Now that's one of the one of the rollbacks that happened in 2006 has actually opened up a vast tranche of trade in um, particular species that are regulated under CITES, but essentially took away many of the fairly basic safeguards that existed to allow for a degree of traceability and accountability within the system. But removing those safeguards, uh, I would say, played a role Um, Correlation isn't causation, but it certainly played a role in the profusion of even a single species. So the yellow-spotted river turtle, for instance, ballooned from 2006, when there were 150 coming into Hong Kong, to around half a million by 2016. Uh, And part of that may have been because the trade in that particular species just got a lot easier, because there was a lot less paperwork, a lot less expense. So these types of things could certainly do a lot to bring the trade back under some form of regulation which ensured the safety, the suitability and the sustainability of the trade, as I said before. OK, we, ha- we have a caller on the line. It's uh, Professor Malik Pires, who we spoke to uh, earlier on COVID Update. Uh, um, he's uh, uh, back with us to uh, talk about this current issue. Ha- hello. Good morning, Professor Pires. Uh, hello. Yeah, yeah I, I just ahead. wanted to add uh, one di- additional dimension of concern about this exotic pet trade, uh, which I'm horrified to learn from the South China Morning Post article last week and what is being discussed today. And that is the threat of introducing emerging viruses. For example, like monkeypox. Uh, About uh, 20 years ago, there was an outbreak of monkeypox in the United States involving 170 individuals that was related to imported exotic pets into the United States. 
And uh, this is a major risk of introducing uh, novel viruses to populations such as Hong Kong. So I think this is a grave concern for public health as well as, of course, for the environmental sustainability of these species. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Professor Malik Pirise. He's a chair of virology at Hong Kong University School of Public Health, and yeah, we spoke to him uh, earlier on COVID update. Um, yes, uh, um, Sam Inglis, uh, that, that sounds like an important consideration as well, isn't it? The danger that uh, viruses can jump species and get into Hong Kong. Well, it's certainly a factor, um, but I think there are many reasons why we need to be taking better care of the exotics that are arriving in our city. I mean, that would certainly be a factor, you know, the, the health risk that is posed not just to, to people, but also to our local animals, as we talked about with the Rana viruses and the mm. chytrid, you know, there are so there's a multiplicity of factors that, that you have to take into consideration before, in, before allowing an exotic species to enter the trade. And I think that that's the challenge, is that we kind of have this... We do have a system where there are so-called major factors that are considered by AFCD before it permits a species to enter our local trade. But then when you start to delve into, you know, the unique issues that, are, that relate to some of these, these species, you start to see that there are more complexities and more challenges than might necessarily have been factored in or, or, or you know or the situation has evolved i mean there are there are species like the pancake tortoise which you know two decades ago that may have been sustainable and suitable to have it in trade but when we started to look at it we started to understand how dire the situation is just for that one species i mean hong kong led global demand uh, for that species for a period of time and this is a species that was being imported from a country that has no official breeding operation despite the fact that the disclosure form said that these were coming from breeding operations um, we're talking about thousands arriving from a country that only has a population of fewer than 500 so there's a disparity in the numbers there and then when you consider the economic or the the sort of the the co commercial viability of that species you have to factor in that this is a species that lays one egg a year so there's a whole variety of complex issues that you really have to take into consideration you have to cross match you know the trade data you have to understand the conservation value you have to understand the reproductivity of it you have to understand how climate change has been exacerbating the situation for these species in the wild you have to understand the trade networks that exist in the source country and also through to Hong Kong and how our decisions here matter in so many other places around the world. I mean, I mentioned 84 countries. That really is the tip of the iceberg. There are more, and that doesn't even factor in our responsibility on the broader scale to the places where we allow these animals to go on to from Hong Kong. I mean, if you allow an invasive species into Hong Kong and then it ends up in markets in China and then it ends up in being released on the mainland, that obviously raises some concerns about our due diligence and our responsibility to the broader regional ecosystems. Mm. You've referred just a few times. Yeah. Just to build on that for a moment. So Sam talked about uh, mismatches in data. In some analysis of CITES data, they found that about 93% of CITES data had fundamental mismatches between some of the numbers. Only around 7% were accurate. And so in order to try and even understand the basic data on what is in trade, we are struggling. And that's why countries like... Um, 
China and regions like Hong Kong need to do better at making sure that things are accurately databased and monitored because otherwise we don't know what we're working with. And as Professor Malik said, disease is a real issue. We've seen extinctions related to disease of amphibians in Central America since the 1980s from the imports of Xenopus. We've seen species in the UK uh, of crayfish responding to uh, diseases that are being spread by imported crayfish. This is a major issue of biological security. And in fact, the major initiatives in both the US and Europe relate to disease rather than wildlife trade. And that's been some of the only way we've actually managed to see successful interventions that have protected species. So I, I started to ask a question because you referred, both of you, sometimes to one country or a certain country. You seem a little bit reluctant sometimes to name the country. Are there some countries with a with a bad record in this area? Um, I think indisputably yes. <laughs> and if you look at the online trade as we've been doing, especially using social media, you'll see countries like Indonesia, for example, are exporting a massive amount of animals, particularly reptiles, but we're also seeing huge levels of uh, invertebrate export from those countries. Something else we noticed in our recent arachnid analysis is in almost every continent, you will have a country where when you look at species purportedly being exported from the wild, the majority of animals that they are exporting don't actually come from that country. And so they are very clearly being used as a conduit because they have porous borders and the countries around them have much tighter rules around export. And so we need a much more joined up approach. Europe is actually meant to have legislation that is meant to do what's called a non-detriment finding on the import of a lot of wildlife, but those non-detriment findings can be almost non-existent despite the fact that they're meant to be being used more. And again, that means that uh, the majority of what is being imported in terms of wildlife could be having a hugely detrimental effect on those wild populations. But because the data are so poor and so full of errors, it's very difficult to get a clear idea on just how bad the situation is. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, both of you, for joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, a very uh, serious issue, obviously. Uh, thanks for explaining that, and good luck with your um, efforts uh, in this regard. Um, that was uh, Dr Alice Hughes, you heard from there, who's an Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's School of Biological Science. And thanks also very much to Sam Inglis, the Wildlife Programme Manager at uh, ADM Capital Foundation. Um, we're going to go to the news summary and morning brew in a moment. Uh, just before we do that, uh, uh, a quick look at the weather. It's going to be cloudy with a few showers today. Top temperature around 26 degrees, uh, moderate to fresh easterly winds, occasionally strong offshore. The outlook... A few showers in the next few days. It's currently 23 degrees, humidity 92%. Take a happy ride with Joy You Card. Just tap and feel the joy of getting around. Hey, pals over 65, you must apply for a Joy You Card in phases by the end of 2023. Your current octopus will not be covered under the $2 scheme in future. Hong Kong residents born in 1956 must apply for a Joy You Card in June via Octopus app or by post. For details, visit the Joy You Card website or call 3147 1388. And now the news summary with Andrew Shirovsky. 
Foreign Minister Wang Yi has strongly criticized America's Indo-Pacific strategy, accusing Washington of attempting to create division, incite confrontation, and undermine peace. Mr. Wang said the strategy would inevitably fail. He made the comments as U.S. President Joe Biden continues his visit to Asia and ahead of talks between the so-called Quad Group. The former chief executive, C.Y. Leung, says the government needs to strengthen patriotic groups in universities and the media. He said that despite the national security law and an improved electoral system, patriots can't assume that the job is done. Hong Kong officials reported 237 new COVID-19 cases yesterday. 25 were imported. Meanwhile, the American Club in Central is one of